God's word says in Luke 1, 1 through 4, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, seem good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at your word, would you provide that certainty? May it not be perceived as a good story alone or just a good idea, but may we see that these things truly happen and that you, through your Son, give life. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, over 16 million Americans served in World War II, but each year the number of those who remain dwindles lower and lower. On June 6, 2014, at the 70th anniversary of the D-Day invasion, just over 1 million still lived. And estimates that are on June 6, 2024, a decade later, only around 80,000 will still be living. What has been called the greatest generation will soon no longer be with us. Now, there are many reasons this is tragic, but one is that there will no longer be eyewitnesses to the events and times of the war. We'll move from being able to go and talk to them face to face about what actually happened to then only being able to read or watch or listen to a recording of what they said. And this is significant because we'll be forever trapped in what has already been recorded. You know, now you can go talk to living witnesses and ask about the same thing from a different angle. Hear a new perspective. Hear it again and make sure, is this really what happened? But once they're gone, no more will we know anything new about it. Only what is already there will be what we can draw from. Well, this morning as we begin to look at the gospel according to Luke, we'll see that Luke, he has many aims, many purposes, many things he wants to do. But one of the primary things is that he wants to show the certainty of the eyewitness testimony of those at the time of Jesus. You know, as he walked, as they walked and talked with Jesus, those who did that are now, for Luke, dwindling lower and lower. And he wanted to investigate and research and make sure they had accurate the events in person of Jesus. And as we look at this this morning, we're going to see three things. If you look at the back of your bulletin, you'll see this first in verses 1 through 2. Luke is going to explain the faithful passing down of the eyewitnesses. And then in verses 3 through 4, we'll see the faithful passing to Theophilus. And then lastly, we're going to ask a question that is more kind of dealing with our time, and that is, is this passing down faith, or is this passing down history? But before jumping into that, let's consider why would we study a gospel? You know, one man I know questioned, well, why would I read something that there are four different versions of and yet that's kind of reversing it because actually it's due to the truthfulness and significance of jesus that we have four accounts you know consider the bible throughout the bible no other story is told more than twice you know you can look at overlaps between maybe exodus and deuteronomy or chronicles and kings and we could go on and sometimes the story will get told in one and the other but none of them get told more than twice but the story of Jesus is so central, it gets told from four different angles. And as we focus on a gospel for several months, 
hopefully we'll be realigned to the center of God's purposes in our own lives. Now each gospel is like a diamond, shining a light on the diamond and reflecting it in a different way. You know, Matthew was before a believer, he was a tax collector. And so he's writing from the perspective of a hated, upper-class Jew, now one who's trusting the Messiah. Mark was most likely the scribe of Peter. And so he's writing from the hand of Peter, knowing someone who is very close to Jesus. Luke here is someone who's not a Jew, he's a Gentile. And he's writing more from a historical investigation. Now, Luke is very interesting because as we read through it, we'll never actually see it say that Luke wrote it. However, as we look, we'll see that there's lots of evidences. Even as we look at Acts, we, there's times he talks about we, and it seems to be referring to him. And Luke is a very important figure because if you look at this gospel and then Acts, that's over one-fourth of the New Testament. And Luke is most likely the person Paul describes as Luke, the beloved physician. Well, then the fourth reflection on the diamond of Christ is the Gospel of John, which is, you know, is a very evangelistic and theologically driven message. And each of these provides us with a different angle on Christ. Luke, as I said, is going to be the longest and will help us see so many important truths about Christ. So with those beginning marks, let's look at verses 1 through 2, the faithful passing down of eyewitnesses. And Luke begins by saying, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. And the way Luke begins his gospel mirrors the way that people in his time would write of historical accounts. And that's important because he's showing, look, I'm writing history. I'm not recording fables or tall tales or myths. I'm writing something that really happened. And this morning, we're going to focus on these four verses. Now, you may have noticed as we read through, though there are four verses, it's actually one sentence. You know, all of our major translations, except for the NIV, match the grammar and the punctuation of the Greek where they don't put the period until the end. Now, if you're a grammar diagramming sentence lover, this is like a feast. Oh, imagine diagramming this sentence. Oh, your mind's going crazy with all the dotted lines and angles and ways you... Do it. You grammar haters are thinking, oh man, who would make a student do this? But nonetheless, in the first verse, he's setting down two important aspects of what he's doing. First, he's noting that many others have already undertaken to write down what happened. And the word for what happened is translated in various versions. What is a tale, account, declaration, or narrative? But as we go through it, we're going to see that Luke means a true narrative, not tall tales. You know, often when we hear a narrative or a tale, we think of someone's telling a good yarn, a good story. And we even say, hey, stop telling me stories as though they're untrue. But the way Luke writes, he's showing that, look, no, this is a historical true work. And Luke mentions the prior compilations of what has been done, not to say he's correcting them or cleaning them up, but rather that he's going to add to them, to build on them. That's why in verse 3 he says, it seemed good also to me. It was good what they did, and it's good also for me to complement and supplement them. Now, what were these other things? Well, they could be Matthew and Mark. They could be collections that were written down, other collections that we don't now have. They could be oral stories that have been compiled, or it could be some combination of those. You know, we aren't really sure what Luke had before him, but Luke's point is 
He's not doing something novel. Rather, he's drawing on the, what was recorded and passed down before him. And the second thing we notice from verse 1 is that these were compiled, the events that were compiled were accomplished among us. Now, accomplished is the idea of fulfilled. And it points to the idea that these deeds kept the promises and prophecies of God. Earlier, Luke, Keith read for us Luke 4, where Jesus went into the synagogue and read Isaiah 61. And after he read it, he sat down and said, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You know, Luke is saying this person that he's writing about has come to show he's accomplished, he's fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures. Or at the end of Luke, in chapter 24, when Jesus rises from the dead, he's talking to disciples and he tells them how the Messiah, Jesus, fulfilled what was written in Moses and the prophets. So Luke is writing about things that were fulfilled. And so the narratives that Luke is drawing from, they're telling of these deeds. And notice it says in verse 2, it was just as that was done. You know, they didn't twist it. They didn't add to the stories. They didn't take away from the stories. They didn't go, you know what? That's really going to be embarrassing if we tell how Peter responded there. We'll take that out. Or you know what? This would make it better if we put this here. No, exactly what happened is what they told. And they delivered or handed down these accounts, it says in verse 2. And that's a technical term, scholars tell us, of passing down an authoritative tradition. Again, the events, the stories, the message were faithfully passed down. And these faithful messengers delivered them to us, showing that Luke was actually not one of the primary eyewitnesses, but rather he's getting his information from the primary witnesses. Now we have to pause here, because for many in our culture, and maybe for you, what I've just said doesn't give you confidence. It makes you go, well, how do we really know we have what was said? You know, Jesus was born most likely somewhere between 3 to 6 AD, and then he died somewhere between 33 to 36 AD, and the first gospel wasn't written until the 60s. That's 30 years before some events were written down and 60 before others. You know, we've all seen how within a day a story can get embellished and spread, and you hear at the end of the day the story and you go, whoa, that's not what happened. And that can happen in a day, let alone 30 years or 60 years. You know, no one is able to keep the story straight. This is like asking someone, can you tell me what happened in 1988? Well, we wouldn't expect that would be a historical representation. You couldn't do that, could you? Well, have you ever heard the term anachronism? An anachronism is, if you split it up, Anna which means back or again in chronos, which means time. It's putting something in time that wasn't there before. It's like asking, hey, what kind of cell phone did Christopher Columbus use to let King Ferdinand know he made it to the New Worlds? Well, um, uh, there were no cell phones. That's an anachronism. You're putting back in time something that wasn't there. And the problem is, as we go through life, we have a hard time realizing what life was like before us and we put our way we live the way we think the way we act back on them and so we have a hard time over remembering details and when we want to remember something what do we do we say you better write it down so you don't forget and so we then assume well that must mean that every people before us if they didn't write it down they couldn't keep it straight and we're assuming that and then so we say 
passing stuff down by word of mouth, what people will call oral transmission, that has to have led to all kinds of distortions and change. There's no way it could happen. Yet, there have been some cultures that do transmit their information orally, again, by word of mouth, and they do an incredibly good job at it. Ken Bailey was a man who lived and worked in the Middle East for close to four decades, and he wrote an article in it. It's called Informed, Controlled, Oral Tradition in the Synoptic Gospels. If you write scholarly things, you have to give them weird titles like that. And nonetheless, in it, he's recounting this Middle Eastern culture and how they pass down information. And he talks about three different ways they did this. First, they did have their everyday gossip, just like we do. And he saw once where there was a bomb that was blew up and killed three people randomly. And within a few weeks, 300 people had been massacred in cold blood. The story was what we expect. Ah, oh, of course, see how it gets embellished and changed. But then they also had other things that stayed true through time. They would sit, the men would sit down at night and talk, and they would tell stories, and they would tell proverbs and different things. And these they guarded very closely. During one of these times, Bailey was there sitting with them, and they were telling a story, and one man started to respond to a question. And one of the elders piped up and said, he wouldn't understand, he hasn't, he's not from this village. So Bailey asked him, well, how long has he lived here? The man replied, well, only 37 years. Now there, they had this long tradition, you have to have been here a long time to faithfully pass on these stories. And they, in their community, can maintained up to 6,000 wisdom sayings. The community perfectly controlled their poems and proverbs, and they didn't allow a single word to change in it. Bailey again writes, If the reciter makes a single mistake, he subjects himself to public correction and thereby to public humiliation. That's just not for years, but for generation upon generation. They accurately pass down 6,000 proverbs and poems. He then tells of other things, the telling of events. And he says that they all had to maintain the same central thread. They did allow some flexibility and detail, but the story had to be accurately passed down. And he then writes, the story can endure a hundred transmissions through a chain of 101 different people, and the inner core of the story remains intact. To express how this happened, he told of a prior missionary, John Hogg, who had gone to minister to these people. And he had gone into one troublemaker's home, and he the man said, well, Dr. Hogg, do you seek to do what is written in the Gospels? I do, answered Dr. Hogg. Very well, then, he said, in the Gospels, it says the evangelist is to eat what is set before him. Do you accept that? Yes, came the reply, whereupon they placed in front of him a dried cow manure patty of the type the village used for cooking fuel. They then said to him, very well, then eat this. Dr. Hogg reflected momentarily and answered quietly, This is food for a fire. Give me food for people, and I will eat it. Now, this story happened pre-1900, but Dr. Hogg's daughter that went back in the 1910s and recorded a lot of what happened, and the story was told. And then Dr. Bailey came back in the 50s and 60s and heard the exact same story told in the exact same way. And what is he's trying to convey is that there is the possibility, even in the culture in which Jesus lived, the faithful passing down of stories. Don't presume the way we live today is the way they did it there. He writes, the tradition 
will last in those villages as long as the community he founded, that's Dr. Hogg, survives, or until they acquire electricity and television, which could be a whole sermon on those last two, three words. But nonetheless, they are able to think and remember things because they sit and talk and they pass it down faithfully. And so there really is no reason to doubt that just because there was a span of time, which we should admit between Jesus' life in the first writing it down, that we don't have what happened. We can see in other cultures, even the geographic culture in which Jesus lived, that this has been done for hundreds to thousands of years. And so Luke is conveying that it was faithfully passed down to him, and now in verses 3 through 4, he's going to faithfully pass it to Theophilus. The second point, the faithful passing to Theophilus. Theophilus. So verse 3 says, Seemed good to me, also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Again, notice this is because it also seems good. He's not saying I'm trying to correct the other things. He's not fixing them as though they had mistakes. Rather, he's adding and supplementing what was already there. And now someone could ask, well, Luke, you weren't there. Why should we listen to what you have to say? You're not an eyewitness testimony. And he gives four important truths about himself and his work by writing. He has followed all things closely for some time past. So the first thing to notice from that is that he has followed, which is a word which refers to investigation and research. Well, when would Luke have done this? Well, Luke actually worked alongside Mark, who wrote the Gospel Mark. For as Paul wraps up his letter to Philemon, he writes about Mark Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So as Luke worked with Mark, he had plenty, ample time to talk to him and say, hey, I remember reading this. Tell me more about that. Or then, you, may, you can read about how Paul was in prison in Caesarea for two years. That's in the land of Palestine. And from there, Luke, for two years, probably went and investigated various people, asked some questions. Probably at this time, he went and talked to Mary and gave us the extra information we have about the beginnings of the life of Jesus. So thus he followed what happened and did, as we would say, investigative reporting and documenting. Well, second, he says he's followed all things. You know, the extent of his investigation covered everything that was known. We would say from A to Z. There was not a story he did not pursue or a lead he did not follow. And all the information was put on the table, so to speak. And he writes from that. The third thing was that it was from the beginning, or your version may say, for some time past. Thus his investigation was not only from A to Z, but also from beginning to end. So Luke will provide for us more details into the birth and early years of Jesus. And so, again, while he's not correcting or cleaning up the other Gospels, he's contributing things that help shine light on the beauty of Christ. As well, along with the early years of Jesus, Luke adds greater emphasis on how the good news is for both Jew and Gentile. It's only in Luke that we read of the parables of the Good Samaritan and the prodigal son. And we could go on and on, but the careful research and writing beautifully complement and supplement the other Gospels. But not only does he add important events and teachings during the life of Jesus, but also Luke is the only gospel to have a sequel. For the Acts of the Apostles was also written by Luke. You could call it Volume 2. 
That's why if you turn there, we're not going to, but if you turn, you could read in Acts 1, 1 and 2, it says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So Luke expanded. He researched not just the events in Jesus' life, but what went after that. Well, fourth, Luke's gospel deserves careful consideration because he has followed all things, he says, closely. You know, the manner in which he did his work showed attention to detail. He was not a casual observer from afar, but he got close and sought to know it personally, or as he says, closely. And this explanation of Luke's gospel shines some light on what we mean when we say the Bible was inspired by the Holy Spirit. You know, as you talk to your Muslim friends or your Mormon friends, they will convey that their book, their authors were merely scribes. Well, what does a scribe do? They write down exactly what they are told. They don't have any of their personality. They have what's dictated to them. But Luke investigated. He has his personality in it. He's not merely a scribe. He's an investigative reporter. You know, the Holy Spirit worked through investigations, through his compilation, and through the final editorial refinements to give us Luke's gospel. Investigation is not imposed to inspiration. The Holy Spirit used men's personalities, styles of writing, their own background to shape what was inspired. And then Luke says that with his careful, thorough, and precise investigation complete, he writes an orderly account for you, it says in the middle of verse 3. Now, as we look through Luke, we'll see that orderly does not necessarily always mean chronological. It's mainly chronological, but sometimes it will be thematic or put in a logical order. Now, he doesn't twist or he doesn't manipulate the stories and teachings. But as with every biographer, they don't start with when the mom went to the hospital to deliver the baby and then recount detail by detail until they die. They jump forward and then they go back. They talk about this part of their life and then they talk about this and then they go, wait, you've got to understand this part of their life before. Not because they're twisting and manipulating, but they're trying to tell an orderly account. Well, one aspect of Luke's orderliness can be seen by five pretty clear sections. In chapters, now of course chapters were put in later, but in the chapters 1 and 2, we're told of the birth and early years of the life of Jesus. And then in chapter 3 through chapter 4, 13, we see Jesus' preparation for ministry. Then from chapter 4, 14 to 9, 50, describes the ministry of Jesus in Galilee. And then it says very purposefully in 951 that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. So 951 to 1944 shows Jesus going resolutely to the cross. And then lastly, fifthly, from 1945 to the end is the trial, crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And then Acts picks up the same orderly account because he details the spreading of the good news of Jesus. So if we look at these together... We see kind of a geographical order because the story goes from Galilee to Samaria to Jerusalem where Jesus dies. And then Acts, it goes back from Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth to Rome. Thus, Luke has written an orderly account, mostly chronological, but also geographical and thematic. Well, the last thing he says in verse 3 is that he writes this to most excellent Theophilus. Now, we don't know a lot about Theophilus. His given this title, Most Excellent, which were to refer to someone in their time with a high standing in their society. 
as well, Theophilus means loved by God. Beyond that, we don't know much about him. Now, that means, of course, scholars are going to write a lot about him and who he is. We don't really know. But that does not slow people down, nonetheless. But he then says that he's writing for a purpose. He's not just writing because he wants Theophilus to have certainty about what he's been taught. You know, there comes a point in every person's life, almost every person's life, when they ask and should ask, is this true because I was taught this? Or is this true? And in some way, Theophilus has been taught about Christ. Is he now a believer? Is he questioning? We're not told. But nonetheless, he's being now given evidence to say, look, don't just accept this because you were taught it. Look at the evidence. But can we really be certain of truth, though? You know, many today will say certainty of being right is the only sin. When I was in college, I took a course on the foundations of education, and the professor very strongly asserted there was no way to be certain about truth. Now, he was a really engaging lecturer. I really enjoyed him as a person. However, he was quite clear on this. And not only that it was impossible, but it was dangerous. The textbook, which he wrote and he assigned, reads, reads, The world has seen far too many tragedies result from a belief that one person, race, religion, culture, sacred book, historical interpretation, or manifesto is universally true. Now, we need to be clear here. Luke writes that we can, when he writes that we can have certainty, he's not saying we can have certainty about every single aspect of life. He's saying we can have certainty about the most important aspect of life, the central thing of life, God and how he's revealed himself in Jesus Christ. You know, sadly, at times, Christians carry the aura that we know everything. Well, that's not true. We don't have certainty about everything. We have certainty about the most important thing. You know, our, again, our certainty is not on every single facet of life. It's on the central person of life. But I would contend that while there are some arrogant Christians, I have often found that those who most strongly voice that there's no certainty express that as a certain opinion. In their mind, it's an undeniable and certain fact that we can't reach certainty. It's really a magician's sleight of hand, for it condones for itself what it rebukes in others. Thus, what is praised today is doubt, not faith. Everyone's view is welcome to the table, except the view that says it's right. Listening to other viewpoints is lauded. Being open-minded is great, though you should never listen to viewpoints that claim to be certain of the truth. And yet, as we've already stated, they are certain of life's uncertainty. You know, their actions are showing they do think certainty is possible, just not with the Bible. And Luke provides us with evidence that we can be certain that these things are true. Here in the Summer Olympics at Rio, some of you love the Olympics, I do, 2016, the U.S. men were trying in the 4x100 relay to finally get back on the medal stand again. It had been 12 years since they had been there, and they used to dominate the event. And the race went, of course, you're not going to beat Usain Bolt and his team, but they got third, and they were excited. We're finally back on the medal stand until they were notified that they had passed the baton just past the zone in which they were allowed to pass it, and they were disqualified. Now, for 16 years, they have not been on the medal stand, and many times because they have not passed the baton 
faithfully. Well, this morning we've been saying that there has been this faithful passing of the baton of the truth of the message and events of Jesus of Nazareth. But many critics today will say, well, yes, maybe what is here has been passed down, but was it the right baton that was being passed? Is this the baton of faith that has been passed or the baton of history? And that leads to our last section, passing down faith or history. Now, Luke is clearly stating that he is writing history. He's passing down history. But the modern view of many academics, at least, and skeptics, is that we have recorded for us is not the Jesus of history, but the Jesus of faith. Now, those terms, you might be thinking, what are you talking about? So let me pause and explain what people mean by that. What they mean is, look, what we have, they would claim, is these stories that were passed. And then these people who believed in Jesus, what they wanted to do was make sure it agreed with that. So then they wrote, they made up a lot of what's here. This is a record of what people believed about Jesus. However, in our investigative research, we can find out what was really done, the history of Jesus. So you often hear this dichotomy, the Jesus of faith, what people believe about him, and the Jesus of history, what really happened. In 1985, Robert Funk began what would be called the Jesus Seminar and the West Star Institute. In writing about what they were doing, Mr. Funk wrote, We are about to embark on a momentous enterprise. We are going to inquire simply, rigorously, after the voice of Jesus, after what he really said. In other words, they are trying to find the historical Jesus, to know what he really said. And so this group of scholars, they met and they discussed for various years the various sayings and stories about Jesus. And after discussions and writing articles, they would vote. To vote, they would drop one of four beads into a box. If they thought Jesus undoubtedly said this or did it, they would put in the red bead. If Jesus probably said something like this, then they would put in the pink bead. If Jesus did not say this, but the ideas contained it were very close to his, then they would put in a gray bead. However, if Jesus didn't say it, and it only represented the perspective or content of a later people of faith, they would put in a black bead. And when they were done, they figured out by their studies what Jesus actually did and said. They said about 18% of the sayings and 16% of the deeds attributed to Jesus and the Gospels are authentic. So that's not very much. 18% of the sayings, 16% of the deeds. Now, I don't know about you, but this is concerning because I don't want to be on an intellectual. I don't want to be a stick my head in the sand, ignore the facts and reality. I don't want to be someone who, well, yeah, I know it's not really true, but it gets me through life. It's a good story. You know, that's, that's what's helpful. Why do we, we don't want to attack that. No. When scholarship and research have shown something, we should listen. And so this should be troubling. But let's just ask two simple questions. First, who was invited to the seminar? Well, it was people who were already skeptical in the first place. So it's not too surprising that people who are skeptical then say, we're skeptical. There weren't invited people who thought it was true. So you're only going to get a representation of what they thought. Well, second, what criteria did they use? And we could look at all things, but I want to focus on one thing. An often unstated criteria or assumption that was actually stated by Funk himself later in an article he wrote. He said, the notion that God interferes with the order of nature from time to time in order to aid or punish is no longer credible. 
Miracles are conceivable only as the inexplicable. Otherwise, they contradict the regularity of the order of the physical universe. In other words, a starting assumption is miracles cannot be true. Now, let's just think about it. If you assume miracles are not valid, well, then that means Jesus didn't rise from the dead. We've never seen anyone rise from the dead. So you can go ahead and knock that out of the Gospels. And anytime Jesus talked about his resurrection or the disciples talked about it, well, then that can't be true. So you can get rid of that. And miracles, well, they're all over the Gospels. But those can't happen. So we can clearly get rid of that or anytime they talk about that. Yet, how do we know that miracles don't happen? That is a faith assumption. And really, the exact opposite of what we're often told happens is happening. Here we're told that it's the New Testament and believers in Jesus who won't look at the facts, but they have their faith. That's what guides them. Yet here, it's clearly their faith in the lack of miracles that is for them determining what the facts are. Now, we want to be clear. I want to be clear. Lots of scholars who do not believe in the authenticity of the New Testament, would not agree with the way they did the Jesus Seminar. So I'm not trying to set up a straw man and say, everyone who disagrees with us have these bead voting approach. But the assumption that we can understand everything from a natural perspective, that there is nothing supernatural, is often the starting point. And if you start with that faith assumption, it then affects the facts that you think are real. But the amazing thing about the disciples is if you think about it, their faith would have never produced these facts. What did they do when Jesus was arrested? They fled. How did Peter respond to his connections with Jesus? He lied. He cursed. What was their emotional and physical response to Jesus' crucifixion? They went into hiding. They were terrified. They had doubt. How did they respond when they were told Jesus rose from the dead? I have to see it myself. I have to put my hand in his side. If anything, their faith would have said this could not, this would not happen. It was the undeniable fact of nail-pierced hands and feet and of a bodily Jesus standing in front of them that led to their faith. It would have never been their faith that led to these facts. So unlike modern scholars, their faith didn't create the facts, but their facts, in fact, created the faith. Now we began by noting the shrinking portion of World War II veterans. One man who wanted to document more of this before they died was Marcus Brotherton. He interviewed men from Easy Company, the 101st Division. They served in World War II, and you may know them. They became famous through the first book and then miniseries, Band of Brothers. And as he was talking about the book, Marcus Brotherton told the story of Forrest Guth. He said, when Forrest was jumping into Holland for Operation Market Garden, they come up with good names, by the way, his parachute malfunctioned. He's jumping out of a plane, he says, and because the men jumped so low on that jump, below 500 feet, there wasn't enough time to open his reserve chute. So he lands and he hits hard. He just lands with a thud, knocks them out, and when he comes to, he can't move his back or legs. They ship him to a hospital in England, take x-rays and whatnot, he says, and discover he's got a broken disc in his back. That was it. That was his golden ticket home if he wanted it. He could have been excused from the war. But 
He stayed in the hospital for a while, regained some of his feeling in his legs and back. And although he's still under a great deal of pain, he made the choice to go back to the front and continue the battle with his buddies. Well, sadly, Forrest Guth died in 2009. So you can believe the eyewitness reports and the documentation of it, or you can say it's a farce. That's impossible. That couldn't happen. That's an embellishment of a story over time. However, eyewitness testimony and careful investigation into the reality of the events show that they did occur. Well, Jesus did more than return to the front lines with the severely injured back. Jesus was more than just a man from the incredible easy company. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who humbled himself by taking on a human body. He lived perfectly in our place. He died taking the punishment we deserve. And then he rose again, conquering sin and death. And now he declares that if we'll just repent of our sins and trust in him, we can have eternal life. We can have forgiveness of sins. We can have hope, restoration, peace, joy, purpose, and on and on. Now, like Forrest Youth, you can say, impossible. That couldn't happen. That's the embellishment of story over time. Or you could look at the clear, verified eyewitnesses, their accounts. Jesus is alive. He rose again. Let's look and read and study about the faithful testimony of Jesus. He came that you might have life. And to do that, he gave his life for you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that we don't have to go through life just hoping and wishing and leaning on fables, but we can trust in what is sure, what is certain. We can trust in you. Lord, we thank you that you made a way that we could come back to you. Lord, may we have renewed confidence in you today. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.